everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing okay wherever you are. There's not too much going on with me these days. The past week was the Chinese Dreaming Festival, so I got to relax a bit. I'm still waiting for the vaccine, but otherwise I'm doing okay. So I'll just jump right to today's episode with my very special guest, Noe Gaitan, an artist and arts educator. Born and raised in Southern California, Noe developed his passion for arts education, working at the Skirball Cultural Center and Armory Center for the Arts in Los Angeles, before getting a BA at UC Irvine. After, Noe completed an MFA in public practice at Otis College of Art and Design. Noe is also part of the Michelada Think Tank, a collective of socially conscious artists, educators, and activists working towards racial equity in the arts. More recently, Noe joined Admin, a space for arts administrators to support one another, discuss pressing issues, and workshop new forms of cultural institutions. In addition to all this, Noe works as a school, youth, and family programs educator at the Brooklyn Museum. I first met Noe through my good friend Carol Zhou, a previous guest of the show. Carol and the rest of the Michelada Think Tank were doing a project for open engagement in Pittsburgh, and the whole collective stayed at my place. At the time, I was taking care of a bunny named LeBun James, and coming home late to see LeBun jumping over and sitting on the sleeping Michelada crew is one of my fondest memories. Apparently, Noe remembered it as well. In addition to this, Throughout our conversation, we discussed finding community, diversity work at institutions, and people over objects. I hope you enjoy this. I was curious how that went for you. We never really got to talk that entire time. Um, and yeah, you slept on the floor. You got run over by some bunny. LeBun Le James. Was that his name? Yeah, LeBun James. LeBun yeah. James. I remember that. I remember <laughs> that bunny went very well. <laughs> Um, yeah, so thank you so much for uh, chatting with me, Noe. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really, uh, really excited to, to chat and to catch up because it has, it has been a while. Yeah. So right now you're in New York, so it's like 7 p.m., right? You just got out of work? Uh, it's 8 p.m. Uh, oh, 8 p.m. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, I am in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. Um, as you mentioned, I do work at the Brooklyn Museum, family programs. My title is Art Classes and Camps Coordinator. Okay. Otherwise, how how was your week? How was your day? Um, <laughs> I mean, I assume with, I mean, also it's just like, I, I'm curious what the state of the education is with all the lockdowns too. Yeah. I mean, it's been a wild year. It's been a journey. Um, yeah. And, you know, to think about where we are now, I would say, you know, it's definitely not where I thought I might be a year ago. <laughs> But I think that there's been a lot of good things that have come out of this. And I think, you know, we're all, we're all doing our best, uh, best we can. And I think that, you know, I think there have been a lot of uh, successes. Um, but in terms of like the work that I do as an arts educator, it's all it's very hands-on. 
And so having to pivot to online, yeah, that was definitely a struggle. Um, but here we are. Just last week, I wrapped up a winter camp program. Oh, nice. It was really successful, actually. Um, we had you know, good enrollment. We had some really cool art projects that our campers were making. Um, we have a team of very talented teaching artists that I supervise. Just kind of wild to think that, like, despite being in this pandemic, there are good things that happen, too. And there's a lot of, like, joy and art making that is also still happening. Yeah, yeah. And the whole thing happened on Zoom? Yeah, yep. So we've been doing Zoom basically uh, almost a year. I mean, we we transitioned pretty quickly. Uh, So I coordinate art classes that run on a semester basis. So families or, you know, kids or or adults, we have adult classes, signing up for a program on a semester basis. Okay. And our spring semester starts in March. So about this time last year, we had just completed our first weekend of art classes. And then, yeah. Uh, And then several days later, the museum closed. Yeah, yeah. So it was quite a quite a scramble to figure out what we would uh, be doing. Yeah. But, you know, luckily we have a, a strong community and a very creative staff. And we've been able to really do some pretty exciting things online. Yeah. I mean, I want to, I actually had a whole bunch of questions related to your time at the Brooklyn Art Museum. But before we go there, wanted to go all the way back so just quick bios um so i know you grew up in southern california where about in southern california did you grow up mm-hmm. uh so i grew up in montclair california okay. um and so for those that are not familiar with the area about 45 minutes east of downtown los angeles mm-hmm. um so just outside of la yeah so i grew up you know in a culture that's you know very much similar to LA, uh, a little bit more, you know, the suburbs, a little quieter. And yeah, so I grew up there, you know, my entire childhood there. Um, I did college at UC Irvine, Irvine, California, Orange County. And then I did grad school at Otis College of Art in Los Angeles. Right. And how did you end up deciding to get into arts? Um, I I never imagined doing anything else. Oh, really? Really? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as a kid, I loved drawing and I loved cartoons. And, I, you know, as a kid, I always wanted to be an animator. And that was really my dream job was to be an animator. I thought I was going to go work for Disney, uh-huh. uh, just making movies. Yeah. And in high school, I just did a lot of hacky sack and I didn't really put a portfolio together. So okay. when it came time to apply to art schools, you know, things didn't quite go the way that I thought they would. <laughs> so I, I ended up at UC Irvine, you know, just because that was kind of like the best school out of the ones that I got into. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting, like this question of like, how did you get into art? Like, I feel like my ideas of what art is now and like the things that I'm involved in, like, that's not even what I thought art was when I was yeah, a kid, yeah, yeah. you know? So I don't I don't know if you've had a similar experience. Oh, someone asked me about this for like how would I answer this question to like a her elementary school students, and I remember being like, you know, why most artists get into art is actually very different than what ends up happening or what the art actually mm-hmm. is, right? Like 
we don't have this idea of what actually art is as kids. I mean, we do have something about it, but like this, all the things that come with it, right? The money, the support, the institutional support, the um, the schmoozing, um, <laughs> critics. Like, w- what does it mean to be popular? What does it mean to sustain your practice? Like those things are not really things you think about and also just the different kinds of practices, right? So I think like kind of the work that you're doing, like, you know, public engagement, that stuff was is still not even really talked about a lot of times, even in, in graduate schools or, or undergraduate schools. So yeah, like I think most of the time, our conceptions of art as kids is quite different, skewed, however you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's why for me, you know, like in the work that I do now, I see it as such a blessing to be able to work with kids in this museum context and talk about all kinds of artwork. Um, you know, the Brooklyn Museum is an, it's an encyclopedic museum. So we have, you know, our Asian collection, our Arts of Africa collection, our Arts of the Americas collection. But we have, you know, plenty of uh, contemporary exhibitions as well. So, you know, like talking to kids about, you know, like our, our show coming up is Lorraine O'Grady. Uh, which is like a performance artist, conceptual yeah. artist. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, okay, how do I talk to an eight-year-old about this conceptual feminist performance from the 1980s, you know? Yeah. And it's it's pretty exciting. But, you know, but going, going back to your question, like I, I always kind of knew I wanted to be an artist in some kind of way. But like, actually, I didn't even visit an art museum until I was in college. Until I was already majoring in art, yeah, that was in the Irvine. first time that I went to an art museum, and like, like one thing that I think about a lot is like what school you go to and how that shapes you as an artist or or even as a person, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, because I think I like definitely would not have like gone the way I did, like had I not been indoctrinated by radical feminists at UC Irvine. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I remember like. And it's funny, too, because like the the program at UC Irvine was very much, you know, it's a lot of like reading, like critical theory, not as much emphasis on like making things, you know, yeah, for, yeah, for a lot of yeah, praxis, you yeah. know, I'm all about <laughs> it. But it's, I don't know, I think for a lot of people, it's like really a lot of like students in that program, it was really frustrating. And they, you know, a lot of people kind of felt like, they weren't getting what they wanted out of that program. Whereas like for me, it was like, it just kind of opened up a whole new world Mm -hmm. that I didn't even know was out there. Yeah. And so were you making a lot of things or a lot of it was sort of discussions then at Irvine? Um, Well, you know, when I was in Irvine, it was kind of um, like jack of all trades, master of none. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. You know, like I'll I'll try a little bit of painting, I'll yeah, yeah. try a little bit of photography, yeah. a little bit of sculpture, you mm-hmm. know, and see, you know, see what what I'm really like interested in or, or good at. And ultimately it was really like becoming active in the community, in the kind of student community there. Um, we had an art gallery that was like an undergraduate student run gallery. So I became really involved with that. And then I had this kind of realization like, oh, like this is actually what I'm really like interested in, yeah. you know, like it like was to the point where I was like skipping classes to, you know, mount a 
exhibitions in the student gallery. And I'm like, because this is just where I would rather be. Yeah. And so for, for me, it became really about that kind of like community and collaboration and just like being with other people. I think from there, that's when I, I, I became aware of, I think like at the time, like the term relational aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, like that, that sounds like maybe that's the thing I'm into. <laughs> the artist Daniel Joseph Martinez uh, was faculty at UC Irvine and he actually, he had been on medical leave. Okay. You know, he kind of, he had this reputation of being kind of like a little bit of like an enigma, I guess. Like okay. everybody wanted to work with him, but he was never around and he was kind of like a hard person to get in touch with. You know, as a professor, I identify with that now because you have to respect your own time, you know, and get your own time. <laughs> and so like, yeah, I understand professors to do that now. <laughs> But yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as a student who's like, you know, yeah. wanting to make the most out of your education. Right, right, wanting right. to be like proactive in mm-hmm. like getting what you want. Yes, yeah, so I like hounded him down and like convinced him to do an independent study with mm. me and talk to me about relational aesthetics. I don't know. I feel like that term is so controversial. And I approached him and I was like, I want to learn about relational aesthetics. He kind of mm. like like he almost like cringed, you know, he was like, no, like why? Was was he a relation aesthetics or public practice artist? <laughs> well, you know, like he, he has, his work has been labeled that way, but okay. it's not a term that he, he likes. You know, yeah. Yeah. He likes, he does yeah. not agree with that term. Yeah. Yeah. He does not agree with the way a lot of kind of, with the way that people that talk about relational aesthetics, he doesn't agree with a lot of their writing about right, his right. work. He does public projects yeah. that are socially engaged. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that, I think for me, that was just like another kind of pivotal point. And yeah, and that, that's kind of where that interest kind of really solidified or kind of crystallized. Mm. So when I left UC Irvine, I found myself wanting to be in community with other artists. And I just, I wasn't really, I didn't really have that at the time. And so I spent, it was two years in between undergrad and grad school. I was like living with my parents. I was working as an after-school program teacher. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, this is not where I want to be, you know? So I was like, grad school is the answer to all of life's problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what capitalism tells us, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, that's what, you know, higher ed, all a scam. But we'll, we'll get to that in a second, maybe. But I applied to a few programs, but Otis was actually like the dream school. And I was like, well, I'm probably not going to get in, but I'll apply anyway. And then I got in. Was it dream school because their master's program specifically target public practice? It was my, it was, it was the program that I applied to. I mean, at the time there was not a lot of like public practice programs. And for me, I mean, I was kind of, I was looking at like curatorial programs. I was looking at art history programs, but I kind of had decided for myself that I wanted to be an artist and that no matter what I ended up doing, you know, if I ended up being a teacher or curating or whatever, I wanted to like approach it as an artist. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Otis program was an MFA program. To me, that's, that's me to that. I don't know. I mean, what was your experience like going from undergrad to grad school and kind of that part of, you know, pursuing that next step for you? I mean, I, a lot of it was me figuring out if I wanted to do art. 
I, I majored in painting and then I kind of left not wanting to paint anymore. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do. I did some teaching. I taught SAT in Korea. I moved to LA, did some web development, freelance web development. And I mean, I got good enough that I had time to make art in addition to my freelance work. And then I was sort of like, now's the time to try to go back to grad school because I felt like I had a new mindset to approach art as maybe an older person, maybe more mature, maybe more clear about what I wanted to do. Because I didn't apply to grad school for a long time because I didn't know even what I do in grad school. Mm -hmm. You know, like I was like, I didn't want to paint. So I was like, I shouldn't go to school if I don't want to paint, but I don't want to do anything else. So that was sort of my mindset. And then I also hung out with Carol a lot. And then Carol was also deciding to apply to grad school. Yes, then we we kind of um, kind of applied together. You know, did our applications sort of together? We both had the same mentor. Mm-hmm. And how long? How long was it in between for you? Uh, four years. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a good good amount of time. But I feel like for me, you know, it was definitely like it was a decision that I made. But I I, I wanted to have very kind of concrete goals with what I wanted to get out of it. Yeah. What were those goals? Uh, to get a job. <laughs> okay. No, but um, no, I mean, I like kidding, not kidding. But Which is also funny because like, actually, I, if I were someone that asked me if I should get an MFA for a job, I'd be like, most likely no, <laughs> because it's so hard to get a teaching job. Yeah. And I mean, I think for me, it was like, you know, the, the public practice at Otis, it was a lot of like organizing skills, a lot of like professional practices yeah, yeah, yeah. incorporated into the curriculum. Yeah. You know, I, I knew that they were kind of well connected for like internship opportunities also. So I knew that that was going to be like a big thing. Yeah. I mean, it's quite a unique program because like you said, there weren't that many. I don't know if uh, more has popped up, but in general, it's not like a common specific MFA concentration, right? Yeah, I mean, I have seen I have seen more of them kind of pop up. The the Otis Public Practice MFA actually doesn't exist anymore. Oh, it doesn't. Because um, it used to be a standalone program, and now it's it's like a concentration within their mm. general MFA. Program. Mm. Because that program was it was really it was Suzanne Lacey who like started it. Um, yeah, and now she's at USC. USC, yeah. I think they tried continuing it after she left, but I think it was, I mean, I think it was, it was already kind of struggling. Yeah. Um, I think the financial model just wasn't quite where it needed to be. Yeah. Well, I know you made a, you made a piece about it, right? The institutional critique where you ask people, is education worth 80000 And then you, you printed your own money to try to sell it. So I guess you, you asked other people, but I'm curious, do you think art education is worth 80000 You know, when I... So like I said earlier, like Otis was like the dream school and I applied thinking I wouldn't get in. Yeah, yeah. And then I got in. Yeah. And I was like, oh shit, like, do I really want to like go to school and take on all this debt? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I eventually, I think I guess, I mean, I thought about it for like a month or something. I don't know. And I think eventually I just kind of came to this decision of like, well, like I, I think I, I was of the mindset that like, if that's what I wanted and like, I kind of like thought about it like long and hard, like the reality of it is I'm going to be paying these loans for like 10, 15, maybe 20 years, Mm -hmm. you know? 
And so I had to really kind of come to terms with that. But once once I was able to accept that, then I was like fully, fully on board. And, you know, like I said, like I, it was about like having concrete goals. And so I think for me personally, like I, I think I definitely got what I wanted mm-hmm. out of it because, you know, like immediately after graduating, like I got the job at the Brooklyn Museum, mm-hmm. you know, with Carol uh, and a few other colleagues have um, Enchilada Think Tank, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which is an art collective. And so we were pretty active, you know, doing projects. Uh, you know, we had an artist residency at LACE in, in Hollywood. So yeah, I mean, so I feel like, you know, in terms of like an art practice, I, I was able to find that community that I was looking for in a, in a way that became more sustainable and more about like a, a long-term practice. Yeah. Because the, the other thing that I kind of went into grad school thinking like, okay, I miss the community that I had in college yeah. and I want to have an art community again. Yeah, yeah. But I don't want to just like, you know, finish grad school and then and then not have a community again. So I want to learn how to create those uh, communities. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. and so I feel like we have been able to, to do that, you know, with Michelada Think Tank. We've done projects, you know, we did some things in Dallas, we did a thing in, in Boston, which actually you were in that exhibition too. No, was that not you in Boston? Was that a group show? Yeah, the new Newton Art Center. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. Boston. Yeah, yeah. That was, yeah, that was host. Yeah, that was curated by I think one of the students from my undergrad that also knew Carol. I think I forget. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's hard to pay <laughs> attention to these shows which you're invited to, but you're not really fully partaking in. I think. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. That's 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 how that's how I ended up in Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you do you feel like? Your grad school experience got to where got you to where you wanted to go or where you envisioned you would be going? I mean, it's always a complicated question, right? I mean, I think one of the things I do notice is, like you said, I think having concrete goals is really important. And I think a lot of people who get jaded by or dissatisfied with grad school maybe have goals that they haven't fully fleshed out or thought about or, or, or are maybe unrealistic. And then they end up you know, having a mismatch of expectations, right? I'm sure as an educator, that's one of the things that I've I've learned the most, which is sort of like the most important thing is having matched expectations, right? So if the students or your client or you as a person who's paying for a service expect something and then the thing that's given to you is not that, um, that can be very frustrating, especially when the that thing they're paying for is expensive. But I remember, I like I said, I went to grad school really thinking about what I wanted and I my goal is to sort of, you know, utilize the resources of an institution. And and so, like, I was there. I picked the three-year MFA at Carnegie Mellon. I just want to meet artists, learn how to write. But where I am now in as a teacher and all the residencies I got after definitely kind of came directly from that. But I've also heard a more cynical take on the whole MFA, which is sort of like, if you're going to spend, you know, fifty to 100000 might as well go to New York, throw a bunch of huge parties, and meet all the curators and critics that way. So I've heard I've heard that sort of community building sort of thing. Yeah, but the thing is, like, I got a fifty thousand dollar loan to go to grad school. I'm not sure who's going to give me a fifty thousand dollar loan to go party in New York. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's interesting sort of thought. Were your parents worried about you know? I guess you going back into school. 
and uh, getting an art education and something that seems sort of ephemeral because like my parents were definitely nervous. <laughs> oh yes, definitely. You know, it's kind of like I went to college, I studied art, and then I went and lived with my parents after college. So then for them to hear that I, and, and, you know, I got a, I got a free ride to, to undergrad, Yeah, but I didn't have any college undergrad debt. So then for my parents then to hear like, oh, I want to, you know, go into debt to study the thing that I already studied and led to no job. Yeah. They were definitely worried. Um, and I, my, when I first moved to New York, my mom would be like, you know, I'm, I'm very sad that you're moving across the country, but I'm glad that that you got a job. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do your parents do? So my my dad was a construction worker for a really long time. Uh, both my parents are immigrants from Mexico. And so, yeah, my dad was a construction worker. My mom has been like a, a housewife all of her married life. Um, mm-hmm. And in 2008, uh, when the recession hit, um, my dad actually lost his job mm-hmm. and it was, you know, it was hard for like a, a few years and it was like, like not only was I taking on debt to study this thing that felt pretty frivolous, I was also doing that at a time when my family was on food stamps, you know, yeah. so so it, yeah, I think they they struggled with it, but you know they always kind of let me do my own thing. They never mm. really got in the way of that. You know, I definitely have other friends who you know are, are just kind of hassled by their parents, but not even hassled. Like sometimes it's outright like barred from from doing what they like. I had a friend in uh, undergrad who wanted to study art. Her dad was paying her tuition and said that he was not going to pay her tuition if yeah. she's studying art. Yeah. So, you know, not that my parents had any money to pay any tuition, uh, but yeah. they just never, in, in any way, they, they never yeah. got in the way of me really pursuing what I wanted. Yeah. I mean, it's all out of, you know, I think all these decisions our parents make is all out of fear and, and out of protection. I mean, you know, I th- I'm sure you know that the numbers for how much money you put into art and how much you get out is quite stark for most of the percentages, right? So yeah, I'd be, I'd be afraid yeah. if my kid went into art. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's also like this, like American dream kind of narrative. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, as, as like risky as it might mean, I think, you know, people like come to the U.S. pursuing a better life for themselves and for their children. And so even though they might not fully understand it, I think there's a sense that like for my parents, like that is the American dream. Like the fact that I could pursue art, yeah, you know, was kind of part of that. Yeah, and so after um, Otis, you directly went to the Brooklyn Museum in in the current job that you have, or was it sort of different when you applied? Um, yeah, I started there as an intern. Actually. Okay. Um, and so they have a long running uh, internship program. It's actually, now now it's called a fellowship because it was you know it's a, it's a big job, um, and the word internship did not fully you know capture everything that that the people in that role do. But it's a ten month program, and so I moved you know thinking like okay, well it's a ten month program. 
if I like New York, I can stay. If I don't like it, I can, you know, come back to California. It's very different from California. Very like, different. They're like polar, polar opposites. Yeah, I mean, in, in every in every sense, you know, especially in the winter. Uh, so I'm definitely missing California right now, uh, especially with the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So I did the internship program. It was ten months. Uh, it was really a, a really amazing experience. You know, that first year that I was in New York was a really kind of rewarding and, and fulfilling year. Because I kind of reached a point where it really felt like, you know, the things that I was doing as an artist and the things that I was doing in museum education, they, they felt like they were very much aligned. And, you know, to give you an example of that, so Michelada Think Tank, which I mentioned earlier, you know, we're a collective of artists, activists, educators, hosting conversations to move towards a more equitable art world. And so we do conversations, we do like participatory installations, uh, you know, social. Yeah. I think one of the pieces that I remember the most is when you went to open engagement, you did like a statistic of, of the participants, right? Like what was the breakdown of types of people, uh, race and gender? I mean, that was what I remember. I didn't get to see or if you had, I think you had some um, interventions, but I was also doing my own thing at open engagement. So I didn't get to see that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, kind of our, our bread and butter with Michelle Think Tank is uh, the kind of racial demographic surveys that we do uh, and, you know, turning those into some kind of visual that we can use as, you know, either like a display or, or an intervention or something like that. Yeah, and so actually at the Brooklyn Museum, you know, as, as part of the internship, we had to do a research project and I did my research project on you know, diversity in museums. This was uh, around the same time that the Mellon Foundation published a big uh, survey of, of diversity in museums. Um, so I was kind of using that data and comparing that to the data of uh, the internship itself and mm -hmm. how the internship was kind of creating a pipeline for people of color mm -hmm. uh, into a field that uh, is predominantly white and, you know, as part of that research project, it's also, I had to come up with some proposals for the institution. So like one of the proposals I think I had was like to publish a diversity statement or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, didn't happen. A few years after that, the Department of Cultural Affairs said to all the big institutions that they all needed to have a diversity, equity, and inclusion plan mm. as a policy adopted by, by their board. Uh, so now we have a DEI plan, and now we're talking about publishing it on our website. So I do feel like things are kind of coming full circle, um, and I've been really, really lucky to be involved in some of that work. But back to the internship, you know, so I was kind of doing that work. I was doing the Michelada Think Tank and it felt, you know, it felt really just kind of affirming to, to be able to do that in, in kind of both of those arenas. And, you know, the Brooklyn Museum, I, I, it's been a great experience to, you know, find mentors and, and colleagues who are definitely like-minded and kind of committed to, to doing this work. And so it's, it's been really great for me to be able to develop this practice where I'm kind of taking on this cultural equity work 
as a museum employee, uh, but also as an artist, kind of engaging with institutions in, in different realms. Yeah. And so when you were an intern and you had the, all these initiatives, since the diversity statement didn't happen until recently, does that mean that there was a lot of pushback or they just ignored you or how, how, you know, how, what were some of the strategies that you did or didn't do in that process to kind of get your projects acknowledged or kind of move forward? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this is all ongoing work. Uh, you know, it definitely started before me and will continue after me. So it's, it's not, you know, like I'm sure that wasn't the first time that the idea had, had mm-hmm. come up. You know, sometimes it, things just kind of have to find the, the right time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, like I mentioned mentorship earlier. Yeah. Um, so the, the person who was my my direct supervisor when I was an intern, her name's Adjua Jones Delmeda. Uh-huh. So at the time, she was like the, the coordinator for the internship. She actually went on to become the director of education. It's been, you know, great to have somebody in that role who has been really kind of forward thinking and very kind of really instrumental in, in moving a lot of that work forward. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, Kiana Hendrick, who you know also worked in, in education. She has also a practice as kind of being a diversity consultant for other institutions. So, you know, she's been a really fantastic mentor as well. And I, it's been a blessing to be able to work alongside them and, you know, trying to change the museum from the inside. Uh, so it's been a long, long process. I, you know, I finished that internship, but then I got hired for this permanent position. And I've been able to kind of in, in small ways and in big ways, you know, kind of continue that work. After kind of I finished that research project, I think the next kind of big big event that had happened was Adjua had participated in this fellowship program with an organization called Race Forward. Mm -hmm. And as part of that fellowship, she had to kind of design a pilot program for, you know, some kind of diversity and equity training for the institution. Um, So she put together a series of workshops for the Brooklyn Museum staff. And out of that came uh, what at the time was called the Racial Equity Task Force. Um, And so this was a group of staff members from different departments meeting to kind of talk about what what can we do as an institution to to move diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts forward. And so I, I was involved in that task force for that first year. And that first year, it was a lot of just like visioning uh, and kind of asking questions and kind of just seeing where we're at, you know, developing values, developing some definitions for ourselves. And then after about a year, it kind of coincided that, you know, what I mentioned earlier, the city kind of mandated that we had to have a DEI plan. Right. This is 2018 or 17? Um, I mean, it's been a really long process. It was, you know, there was about a year where the Department of Cultural Affairs put together their their cultural plan, which was actually the first time that New York City had an actual cultural plan, hmm. which seems kind of insane because, you yeah. know, it's, it's like the cultural capital of the world. Yeah. Uh, That's what it claims ways. itself to be, right? 
<laughs> self-proclaimed. Self-proclaimed. And, and yet in terms of like actual policy in, mm. in city government, I mean, you know, they have the Department of Cultural Affairs, but a lot of it was kind of uh, you know, it's under the mayor's office. Mm-hmm. So really it's like kind of left up to the mayor's discretion, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the cultural plan was maybe 2018. Mm-hmm. And then we had about a year to put together our own uh, museum DEI plan. So then, you know, we adopted our DEI plan and then we kind of entered uh, a second phase for the task force and then it kind of evolved. Uh, We started calling it a committee. It kind of had a little bit more structure. We brought in some more staff members to join and we had, you know, different goals that were outlined in the DEI plan that we were yeah. working towards, right? So that first year was kind of just like asking questions and visioning. Then at the start of that second year, okay, we have a plan. Like, let's figure out what, what we're going to do. Was So what did, I'm just curious. So like, because I've never had to do something where I'm like part of an institution trying to enact these sort of diversity initiatives. And I'm just curious, like, so what are some of the things you learn in that process, the strategies to to move something forward, right? Because the argument that's put forth by a lot of these institutions is sort of like, it's too much effort, too much resources. And and I'm curious, like how, yeah, what are some of the things you learn in this process, you know, trying to enact these things? Um, I mean, it's definitely been a big learning experience for me because so as we entered phase two, I actually became one of the co-chairs of the committee. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, one of I was one of three three people leading the committee. And for me, it was just being able to play this role within the institution that's outside of like my my actual job or my title. Mm-hmm. You know, it allowed me to really navigate the institution in a very different kind of way. You know, I think one of the successes of the committee is that it's actually a space where people from different departments come together. Mm. And, you know, the museum is a very hierarchical place. And those power dynamics are definitely still at play in the committee. But it is it is somewhat of a more democratic space that's more kind of equalized. And, you know, we're all literally at the same table having these discussions. So I think for me, it's just, it was really eye-opening as a way of like navigating the institution and really kind of having a better understanding of like the bigger picture of like what it takes to really like run an institution that's like the size of the Brooklyn Museum. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we we had some successes. We had a lot of challenges, a lot of barriers. You know, I, I think that the biggest challenge was just like, there wasn't really a roadmap us even even with the dei plan you know we had goals that we were working towards but how do we achieve those goals was Mm. was a big question Mm. and you know some of the challenges were finding the right stakeholders and the right people in the institution with the power to change things Mm. to actually change them because Mm. you know the committee you know, great group of talented, smart individuals. Uh, but at the same time, we didn't really have the kind of authority for a lot of the changes right. we were seeking to, to right, have. Right. 
So, you know, I think some of the kind of smaller skill wins is just kind of like the education and the kind of community building that happened, you know, within that group Mm. and in small ways, kind of, you know, taking what we were discussing there, you know, back to like our actual job Mm. uh, and the role that we play in the museum and, and having some kind of impact there. But, you know, and I think just museums or large institutions in general, it's, it's just things move at a slow pace. Yeah. And we all want to see that progress happening as fast as possible, but that's just, that's just not the way that it works, you know? Yeah. And I think for me, like I've been on both sides of like, oh, like we need to do this like now. And like, why, why not uh-huh. just do it? You know, yeah, like yeah, we yeah. don't have to like wait for anything, like let's just do it. But then I've also been on the other side of like, well, you know, we really want to make sure that we're being very thoughtful about this, uh, make sure that we're including the right people that need to be included and that we're, you know, engaging in this work in a, in a careful way. Because in a lot of cases in doing this work, like it takes a lot of vulnerability to have open discussions about some of these things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't want to put people in in a situation that could end up actually being harmful. Yeah. So I guess from these discussions, like you said, the more important thing was sort of how you took it back to your own jobs. So I'm just curious, like, you know, did you, how did you change anything in terms of your education program? How did, how did you shift the trajectory of that or the mission statement of that in that process? To achieve diversity and equity, I mean, first you have to kind of define what those are, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, figure out what they mean for you and for your role and for the work that you're doing. But I think the way that I see it is that it really kind of needs to be attacked on all fronts. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like with the art classes, right, that means like the curriculum that we design, right, Uh, making sure that we're you know, thinking about, you know, which artists we're looking at or like, how are we talking about these artists Mm -hmm. or introducing ideas that kind of challenge some of these kind of dominant cultural norms, right? Or, you know, you know, just being, being brave in the way that we bring those conversations into our curriculum, but also like having the skills to have those conversations in a way that allows other people to actually like absorb absorb mm. those things right so yeah. as an educator like the curriculum is, is one thing but you know like as like an administrator right i'm also like supervising a team of teaching artists right so it's like the way that i train teaching artists to to then do the work right, right so like right. you know every time we have like our meetings you know like i've talked to them about like you know, what does it mean to be an anti-racist educator, right? Mm-hmm. And having uh, Kiana, who I mentioned earlier, you know, she's, you know, such a, uh, you know, just uh, she has such a wealth of knowledge and has been a really great resource. But she has a lot of uh, writing that she's done. She has her, you know, guidelines for anti-racist teaching. Uh, and so I've been able to kind of like introduce that. What are some of those guidelines? Um, so one of my favorite ones that I like to talk about is people over objects. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. in, in museums, we love to focus on objects, mm-hmm. uh, materiality, mm-hmm. aesthetics, 
Mm-hmm. But in wanting to use a museum as a resource to bring about equity, it's about understanding different cultures and using the object as a way to talk about people mm. and uh, people's stories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to give you an, like a concrete example of that, we've had teaching artists in the past who maybe wanted to look at, for example, uh, a Kachina doll, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Kachina dolls are these like figures uh, from, you know, indigenous people of the American Southwest. And so, you know, it's like, a, it's, a, it's a doll. You can look at it and be like, oh, like, what do you notice? It has colors, it has mm-hmm. feathers, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And so now we're going to make our own doll. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. Based on like this doll. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, people, people first, people over objects is, you know, actually we're going to talk about the Pueblo people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Pueblo mm-hmm. people who occupied the land that is now called... New Mexico, and we're going to talk about why they made these objects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And so now we're going to have a conversation about why people make objects. So now uh, with the students, you know, we explore those same ideas. And now it's like, well, why, why do you want to make an object? So mm-hmm. then it becomes not just about like copying what they see, but, you know, kind of understanding that process and kind of going through that same right, right. process, all while learning about, you know, other uh, cultures. I, lo- I love that statement, people over objects. Kiana, Kiana Hendrick. Yeah. Not yeah. Me. <laughs> and so I guess do you, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to or that you're planning for in the near future to continue this sort of work? Because like you, were, I'm just I guess because you were mentioning earlier how this part of it is difficult because there's no clear blueprint or guideline for this. So I'm just curious, having done this for a few years and thought about it, and and at this point it seems like there's some sort of robust community and planning. So you know, what is the sort of the moves forward? Yeah. So so Kiana, who I've, I've mentioned several times now, actually, she just got hired as our museum's first director of diversity. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the challenges before was that you had a group of people with like varying levels of, you know, skills and expertise volunteering their time mm-hmm. to do this work on top of like their actual job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like all of us are like already overworked and underpaid. Right. So mm-hmm. in New York city, in New York city, exactly. So one of the challenges was just like dealing with like taking on so much. And so now, you know, now that we have somebody in that role, like who is an expert in this work, who's being paid to do this work and only this work, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think that's really going to help us in, in, in moving things forward. I also think that, you know, the pandemic in a lot of ways, like slowed some things down, but then in some ways it also like, hit the fast forward button, you know, especially with, with all the, with all the um, protests. Exactly. Exactly. So with, with all of the the black lives matter protests that happened last spring, uh, you know, it was kind of like the perfect storm of like things just kind of reaching a level of being so fucked up that like something needed to give. And, you know, it's like, 
there was like the pandemic, the museum was closed, there was layoffs, there's, you know, the BLM uprising. And so we're all like, not only are we trying to figure out how to do the diversity and equity work, we're just trying to figure out how to do any work, you know, under these new circumstances. And so it's kind of jumbled up things in a way that I think allowed things to actually kind of move forward in a way that maybe wouldn't have been possible Mm -hmm. because it, you know, it also just kind of brought kind of a renewed urgency, I think, because, you know, we had our committee, we had goals that we were working towards, but then, you know, I think that the pandemic just had, it kind of forced leadership to really, you know, make some things happen, you know, like for example, when when the committee first was formed, you know, one of the things we talked about, like, can we have a director of diversity? Right. And they're like, no. And that, yeah, yeah, that, exactly. <laughs> Anything requiring money, the answer is no. Yeah. And yet, you know, here we are. Yeah. And so now we have a director of diversity. And it was also in large part made possible by a huge, huge grant that we got. And the grant was only made possible because of the pandemic, you know, like it's like, yeah, we had to like close the museum and go broke in order to get money in order to have money to pay for a diversity director. That's crazy. And now you have a cause show, right? And now we have a cause show to bring all that money back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the other thing. And it's like, you have, that's why you have all these, like, you know, change the museum um, on Instagram and, you know, these, these other accounts that are kind of pushing for this work, this like equity work, because like, it's so fucked up in the art world. Like, you know, like people are, are like hungry people are unemployed yeah. and people are sick and dying and you have museums like just putting on their shows and it's like, I don't know, like it goes back to what I said earlier, like wanting to study art, but at the same time having art feel like like a very frivolous kind of yeah. a thing. Yeah. But I think that's also part of why I went to Otis because it was a program that, you know, it helped people connect art and activism. Mm-hmm. And so I also had a feeling, even though I didn't know exactly what it would look like, you know, I wanted to have an art practice that had you know, some kind of real world impact yeah. beyond, you know, making things to making look objects. at or, you know, making toys that I yeah. sell or, yeah. you know, whatever. <laughs> but anyways, so yeah, so I think like with the art world, you know, or, or with the museum world, you have a lot of people who I think feel a similar way, you know, they feel strongly about how we can kind of collectively shape our society. And so I think it's been really great to see people kind of on social media coming together to try and and move towards that because yeah. you know there's there's so much money out there. Like I don't like right now the problem is not a lack of money. Like there's money out there. It's just like where is that money going? Yeah. And how are we prioritizing these things? Yeah. You know, whether whether you're talking about like a museum's budget and how they are like hiring a director of diversity or not, or like how board members, you know, are choosing to support museums, you know, and I think that's kind of part of that frustration with a lot of kind of cultural workers, because you're in this world where there is so much wealth all around us. Yeah. Like you have objects that are worth millions of dollars 
and you have people who are buying and selling those objects and you have people that are also like working for $15 an hour and trying to like make rent, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, the contrast in art is very stark and I mean, it ties back, I think to like student debt, right? I mean, it all starts also with that where people kind of putting a lot of money into this thing that is very difficult to define and sort of ephemeral. I also, I, I saw, I couldn't find any more information. I saw in your bio also that you're part of admin, which you said is a group of administrators kind of creating space. Is this, is this the group that you're talking about within the Brooklyn Museum or sort of it extends beyond the Brooklyn Museum? No, so that's a group outside of the Brooklyn Museum, admin.network okay. is our website. And yeah, so, you know, this, this is a group. It actually kind of started as a, as a reading club, and I was not a founding member. Uh, I joined the group later, again, because I wanted a community, right? So I went out and I found a community. And what really drew me to this group is people who were like were self-identifying as arts administrators, wanting to kind of create a space to explore how we can kind of think critically about our field. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was like really exciting because, you know, as an artist, sometimes like I want to identify as an artist and I feel like this role I play as an administrator can be at odds with that a little bit. Yeah. But I've always been really interested in like, how do I make those two things align? And so, you know, through admin being able to put on workshops and, you know, events, there's been a lot of really rich community building happening. And just it's been an outlet, I would say, for creativity in a way that for me is really exciting because my creativity is not with a paintbrush or a guitar or whatever. You know, I think for me, it's like bringing people together and have a really interesting conversation. Yeah. That's why I'm on this podcast. But, you know, like to give you an so to give people an example of like what admin really is, um, one of the workshops that I coordinated, it was titled Righteous Rage. And I worked in collaboration with Monica Montgomery, who was the one that kind of facilitated the workshop. So collaboration is like a big thing that we do. And for every workshop that we do, we, we invite other people to, to join us. And we kind of just kind of provide the, the space and, and some of the resources. Uh, we actually have partnered with uh, the Q Art Foundation in mm-hmm. New York. Uh, and, and they've been the ones who very generously provided, you know, the, the location and, and some funding. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, so this workshop, Righteous Rage, it was kind of about inequities in different art communities and, you know, how like, yeah, it's okay to be angry because the world is fucked up, you know, so but what mm-hmm. do you do with that anger and how do you direct that anger towards something productive? Yeah. So the first part was a, a kind of a light show presentation, kind of talking through the process of like, you know, how do I you identify what you care about? Uh, okay, so now you know that you care about whatever, like housing or whatever. Uh, okay, so you've identified that as something that you care about. Where exactly do those inequities exist? You know, how can you identify your own positional power and agency to be able to, you know, mm. work towards that? So, mm. you know, some people are going to be at the front of the fight. 
Some people are, you know, joining a cause that already exists. Other people are providing financial support. Mm -hmm. So it's just about, you know, walking through that process of like, what do I care about? What do I see as a problem? What's my role in in addressing that that problem? So that was the first part of it. And, you know, it's very kind of practical. Uh, And with admin, part of what we do is kind of we want to generate tools or, or resources. So if you go to our website, you can actually pull up kind of that um, mm-hmm. worksheet, you know, that was part of that. I'll put a link on the on the website and the podcast notes. Right. And then the, the second part of that was a more kind of like interactive game that we played, which was a lot of fun. We kind of, we broke up into two different groups and the facilitators went around and, you know, kind of gave us instructions for what to do. But in two separate groups, we uh, we drew up and designed our ideal art community. Mm. So we said, okay, so we're going to have like art schools and we're going to have like art studios and we're going to have exhibition spaces yeah, and we're yeah. going to have housing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the facilitators would come by and they'd be like, oh, like, you know, here's here's uh, a bunch of money that you can use for like these different like activities on this like map that we had drawn out. And we were like, oh, great, we're going to like build roads, you know, we're going to expand the museum and mm-hmm. we're going to give like artist stipends and mm-hmm. the facilitators would come and be like, oh, like, okay, we're going to, you know, take this money away from you now. And it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, there goes like this housing thing that we had made uh, and now the museum is closed and you now we can't pay our teachers and then the facilitators came by and said, oh, we're actually going to uh, take this person from your community and we're just going to, you know, like take them away. Okay. And it's like, boom, well, you know, now we don't have our art teacher, you know? Yeah. So it was, it was this kind of like silly game and it kind of like hit a climax where we actually kind of like revolted against the facilitator. <laughs> we were like, no, we're not going to let this person go. We were kind of like, wrapped our arms around that person's like legs and said like, no, like they're one of us. And so then we like wrapped up and then both, you know, it was two separate groups and they kind of came together. It was like, oh, like this group kept like having all the things like taken away. And this group was like, just given like more, more and more money. And then it's like having a conversation about, you know, like the ways that we reacted in that simulation, you know, and it's like, well, like we're just kind of role playing here, but mm-hmm. you know, actually, like these are things that are happening out in the world, right, you know. Right. And we talked about like how you kind of identify some of these things. So then it's kind of like, well, like there are a lot of you know activists or causes out there, and we all have a role that we play. So how do we become more intentional about like seeking out, yeah, you yeah, know, opportunities to to play that role, whatever that role may be. Yeah, yeah. And also play to your skill set, right? Because everyone has a different skill set. Exactly. And admin, you know, kind of, I mean, admin was pretty active pre-pandemic. And then once the pandemic hit, we did one one Zoom event actually with the new museum. And, oh, nice. And we talked about, because they had just formed their, their union. So and yeah, was it successful? And, it, it, it was fully formed at new museum? It was. I think that they are in their collective bargaining okay. phase, but it's just been really complicated with COVID and layoffs. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah, a lot, a lot yeah. of things happened there too. 
But anyways, yeah, so admin, we did one Zoom workshop last year, and we're now kind of trying to figure out what our next steps are going to be. And it's interesting, you know, I feel like we've had a lot of talks about like what our values are as an art collective. And it's interesting, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about kind of my role as an artist and my role as a museum worker and those two things being kind of aligned. You know, I kind of find myself with the Brooklyn Museum in conversations about our values and how we're going to be updating our values. And yeah. That's like this big institution. And at the same time, I'm having a very similar conversation with like this art collective. Of, so I don't know. I think it's it's interesting the way that the events of the past year have really evolved people's thinking. And I think, you know, we're all working towards equity in some way. But like both the museum and the art collective, we're kind of like asking ourselves the same questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think like the pandemic, you know, happened just as a lot of things are happening at the same time. And it re- made us rethink about how everyone's sort of connected in some way. But we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We're all, you know, just hoping for for the best. I was in a conversation today, like, like I was asked, like, when when do we think we're going to have in-person art classes? Again? Yeah. And it's like, well, it's hard because I feel like I'm very cautiously optimistic And it's hard because on the one hand, you know, as a staff member, I'm like, well, we need to like make sure that you're keeping staff safe and we're not putting anybody at risk. At the same time, I know that the community that we serve is also really wanting to be back with us. Yeah. yeah. So it's like just trying to move forward in a way that's, you know, considerate of all the different factors. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, but on the flip side, you know, like we've been able to expand our audience and we've had people, we've had people from like other countries and other states, you know, participate in our programs in a way that they couldn't before. Or also, you know, like, like people with disabilities who might not be able to travel to the museum or or feel comfortable in that museum space. Mm -hmm. The online classes have actually been really great for them. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's, you know, for everything, there's a positive and a negative, you know, there's no perfect system as we're finding out. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people find you? I, I don't know if you want me to advertise your website because it took me, I had, I had to really dig to find your website. Okay. So admin, admin.network is where you can find information about admin. We do hope to, to okay. do some programming this year. Yeah. I'll try to, I'll try to attend them since everything is, is zoom and remote. So hopefully I can, try to check it out and um, I'll, yeah, I'll let people know. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I thought all the stuff you talked about in terms of museum work, that was really great. And yeah, I haven't actually in- interviewed too many museum educators. Well, I'm happy to uh, connect you with some if you're interested. Yeah, totally. Let's, let's totally do that. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Noe. Yeah. And thank you for the invitation. It's been really fun. Yeah. So thank you so much and hope you have a wonderful Friday. And um, have a wonderful weekend. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziwon Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, under the handle SeeingColorPod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, 
I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.